0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Curtis Sittenfeld, best-selling author of five novels, Prep, The Man of My Dreams, American Wife, Sisterland, and Eligible. Her newest published work is a collection of short stories called You Think It, I'll Say It. Sittenfeld's work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, Vanity Fair, and This American Life, among other outlets. Her new collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, contains stories that focus on gender politics, motherhood, the questionable decisions we make as humans, and the ways in which we assess and judge others. Sittenfeld is known for her uncanny insights into human behavior— We began the discussion talking about her interest in publishing her first short story collection after writing only novels.
1: Well, I think it was actually almost like a return, like instead of turning over a new leaf and, you know, finding or discovering the short story um, as a writer, it was more like coming back to it after a long time away. And so like most writers um, or, you know, many writers, I feel like I sort of taught myself to write fiction by writing short stories and and started it at a very young age, you know, when I was six or something, not necessarily finishing the stories, but essentially writing stories and then doing that up until my mid-20s. And then my first published book, Prep, was a novel. It came out in 2005. And I sort of got on this novel-writing track after that. I mean, essentially – it's pretty standard um, in publishing that if you if you find some success with whether it's a memoir or a researched book of nonfiction or a novel, you know probably the likeliest um, thing that your publisher hopes you'll do is write another thing that's that's in the same category. Um, and, and, I mean, I love writing novels and I love reading novels, but I I think that my love for short stories sort of coexisted all this time. And in the summer of, I think, 2016, I wrote a short story. Like I had written in, so, you know, from 2005 to 2016, it had been more than a decade. And, um, I had written a very occasionally a magazine editor would reach out to me and say, we have this idea, like almost like do you, someone from Slate reached out to me and said, do you want to write a story about set at Obama's inauguration and I was writing it before the inauguration occurred. And I thought that's sort of weird and fun and I'll do it, but it wasn't an idea that had really come from inside my own head or like another time I wrote a story, but it was to such a specific length. And I'm a pretty, as you can tell by this answer, I'm a pretty wordy person and a wordy writer. And so so it was like a shorter thing than I would have probably written left to my own devices. But anyway, it was almost like I, I returned to writing stories on my own terms and they kind of came like pouring out of me in in, in 2016 2017 and, and I, I mean it, it also I think that it's such a it's been such a strange time for our country politically and I don't know it, it felt like the for me personally the short story was an interesting way to kind of like you know, exist in this new political climate.
0: Right. And the book starts and ends with Trump as not a theme, but his presidency matters in the story. It's something that's happening. It's a current event.
1: I wrote the stories that I wanted to write and I had written some before 2016. There's a few, I think there's maybe three are from before 2016, but, um, but it was more like when I started thinking about how to assemble the whole, it seemed really natural that there's there's one story where a man and woman who don't know each other, the, story, the collection opens with a man and woman who don't know each other very well are sort of talking to each other during Trump's campaign. And you know the woman who's a liberal thinks there's just no chance in hell that he'll be the Republican nominee, let alone be elected. And the man is sort of a, you know, not a super intense Trump supporter, but kind of like a a lukewarm Trump supporter. And then the very last story is two people, a man and a woman, who sort of do and sort of don't know each other well, in that they went to high school together many years ago, and then they see each other, you know, like 25 or 27 years later. They see each other soon after the 2016 election, which has dredged up different elements of the past for both of them.
0: Yeah, and in th- in that first story, Gender Studies, the main character, Nell, she's just been dumped by uh, a guy that she's been with for a really long time. And she goes to a conference and basically hooks up with her shuttle driver. And he's the one that's, I mean, he's kind of nonchalant about Trump, but he's like, yeah, he's probably a smart dude. He did well in business. Like, go ahead. So she hooks up with him and she kind of likes him a little bit. But at the end she's able to say whatever mistake she's made or however she feels about it. Well, he just voted for Trump, so I can write that whole thing off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that she has a lot of ambivalence about her own behavior in terms of like what plays out while she's on this business trip and and so the thing that she sort of chooses to dismiss it with is is not- not necessarily the the most significant or the most relevant part of the experience, which is this person's political, you know, the man's political leanings, but it's like the easiest or most convenient for her to latch on to.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Curtis Sittenfeld, author of five novels and a new short story collection called You Think It, I'll Say It. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I found that basically for me, a through line with your short stories was women who lost something or gave something up. And, And by that, I mean, maybe they had a judgment that they had to give up or a judgment they had to try to qualify that didn't really work. Um, they they maybe lost a boyfriend or they had a dream of having a baby and then the actual difficulty of breastfeeding the baby was maybe ruined the dream a little bit. But I'm just wondering if this sounds accurate to you.
1: It's funny. It sounds very accurate. And it's not a way that I have thought of the stories exactly. I mean, which which in some ways is, is interesting. Um, like it's it's why it's interesting to have a book published because then – other people tell you what it's about, and and like, and I, I obviously I have my own ideas and my own goals for the stories, and then it goes out into the world. And sometimes people res- receive it exactly as I intended it, and sometimes people have interpretations that seem to me very off base. And then, in some ways, the most interesting kind is people have interpretations that I wouldn't have anticipated. That I think are, you know, provocative or accurate, or I can see why they have that basis um, for thinking that. But I I feel like like maybe I don't know if this is like five years ago or something. I had the realization that I think the most interesting thing for me to write about is characters who are both intelligent and wrong in their assessment of like another person or a situation or their own life, just because I think that's very common and, I, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I think, like, like I'm 42 years old now, and I think that if you had said to me when I was 22, like, do you think that you will have these things, you know, different opinions or different feelings, like, resolved or figured out, I would have said, like, oh, yes, indeed. And and I still feel a lot of confusion in my daily life about, like, other people and about how my own life is constructed. and um, And so I do – I think that we all – yeah, they, like there's a lot of confusion in a lot of people's lives. And i that's something that I aspire to capture in fiction.
0: Yeah, I was kind of amazed at how judgmental your characters were. Um, which I think works really well in fiction because they they right off the bat the stakes are high because their judgments could be true or false or it could be turned around on them. But that happened with Nell and her judgment of the driver. You have another uh, story where there's this this cup this two people they're not married Julian Graham and they play this game and this is where the title comes from, you think it, I'll say it. So they basically narrate what they see at these parties with these Houston, you know, upper middle class parties. So she'll just rip into people to him. And he's basically like, I'm not going to say anything unless you're wrong. And she's never wrong. And again, that's like based on their judgment of these people. And I'm just curious about that.
1: Well, I think you're right and and i think that sort of what i was saying and what you're saying go together in the sense that um if a char- if i think it's interesting to write about characters who have opinions and are wrong about them they have to have those opinions <laughs> so it's almost like you have to you have to take that risk of and and it's it's very, this this in a way the judgmentalness of my characters i think probably Ties into this larger question that comes up a lot, I think, with my writing and a lot of, I think women's writing more than men's writing, which is like how, quote unquote, likable is a character. and And sometimes people will say, like she's constantly noticing unflattering things about other people or being irritated by other people. and And I think, in life I think that's that's true of many people many people are very often annoyed by others or silently judging them or not silently judging them and then there are some people who are not judgmental but i think non-judgmental people are in the minority do you agree or disagree <laughs>
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Curtis Sittenfeld, author of five novels and a new short story collection called You Think It, I'll Say It. I think it's hard to be human and not form a judgment in your head.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually, I one time read that there's some study, which I'm probably going to summarize this a little bit inaccurately, but it's... Essentially, the study was like saying the reason that people like social media is they'll sort of scroll through Facebook or scroll through um, Twitter, and then they'll find a person doing something that they disapprove of, and then they'll feel this little, I don't know if it's like adrenaline or whatever, but they'll feel this little surge of internal satisfaction and then like in the kind of like that's what they came for and (laughs) then they'll stop looking until they need another hit of of like judgmental satisfaction
2: the publishing industry is a system
0: books are mirrors in people's experiences
2: and in season two of missing pages We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of The Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial.
0: She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired.
2: We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't world-proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season 2 wherever you get your podcasts.
0: One of the things I did really like in and it is a moment of of grace, I think. In in a regular couple, you there's a couple who go on vacation and the woman runs into kind of a nemesis of hers from high school and she judged her in high school and she's judging her now and you know, rightly so, this woman um, didn't seem that kind to her. But at one point, the main character says something about uh, she's too hard on her own gender. Or her husband might have said mm-hmm. that to her. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, this, this was a moment of of grace, but also truth, especially with women. I mean, I don't think men do that to each other, but women can. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, where this line for you came from.
1: Um, that's a good question. It's sometimes I feel like in in writing stories that I'm almost like a a bird building its nest, and it's like I I think where did anything come? You know, like it's like a piece of yarn I stole from a playground, and then like some twigs, and and I'm not. I think it would be hard for me to trace back that particular line, but I think certainly that can be a phenomenon in real life where. I mean, I don't know, I hate to sort of play into that particular stereotype, but but I think, you know, at, at times I think that women can analyze each other's behavior with much greater precision than, than maybe the men around them are. I mean, I don't it's really hard to talk about st- stuff in such a general way.
0: So one of the things that I think is both necessary in fiction and also... Very necessary to control our coincidences. How do you mm-hmm. how do you make a coincidence organic? Like in that story, for instance, this woman runs into this nemesis from high school while she's on vacation. And that's essential to the story. And I'm just wondering, you know, there's other coincidences in your work. And I I assume you've thought about it before.
1: Interesting. That's a, It's a really good question. I mean, I think that coincidences and anything else, like you sort of do what you can get away with on the page, which, of course, is subjective. So I could be like, it works beautifully. And someone else will be like, mm, not exactly. Um, so I think you're right that that entire story wouldn't exist if, you know, it's like these, these two women went to high school together, haven't seen each other for easily like between 15 and 20 years. And that, I mean, that kind of coincidence doesn't seem impossible to me. Like it, because I mean, essentially it's like, it's almost um, a reflection of like, socioeconomics or privilege or whatever that like if someone if a relatively affluent person goes on a trip to a resort it's not shocking that they would see someone they knew from their you know who probably came from like a similar socioeconomic background and blah 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 i mean it's a little bit of a coincidence that like they just got married although the protagonist they got she got married a few months ago and sort of delayed her honeymoon but um i think i think that like sometimes people will say to me about anything, not just coincidence. It's like, how did you decide to do such and such in your story? And I feel like it's it's like, how did you decide to wear the shirt that you're wearing this morning? And like, it's either you put it on and you were like, this is fine. Or you put on something else and you're like, no, this doesn't work. I have to change. And then maybe you put on something else and you're like, no, this doesn't work either. I still have to change. So it's it's almost just like a gut instinct of this is this is okay or this is not okay it needs to be addressed
0: so as i read this i thought you know i didn't really know anything um, about you but i thought this this woman definitely had certain kind of very visceral and strong reactions to motherhood and it be, both because of, of of the breastfeeding story where you know, latching onto the breast is so important for motherhood. Um, but just some other nods in the book, and I'm I'm just wondering if you could talk about that.
1: I have two children. I think that I think I probably would say that it's the most intense experience of my life. Not not nonstop or all the time, but I think I think a, a lot of experiences that I've had in life feel kind of like anticlimactic or um, you know, I don't know. They don't, they don't live up to their billing, but I think that in both good and bad ways, there is something about parenthood that to me feels different from like everything else. And it's, it's also super interesting. I mean, I don't think this is an original observation, but it's interesting how you experience so many things like, like, it's almost like nothing in you inside you has to change for you to reinterpret everything around you. like the 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 present world feels so different. Your own childhood feels so different, your relationship with your parents, you know, you sort of think about it in retrospect. So it's very, I, I think that, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's also like certainly I'm like a parent who, you know, I'm like on my phone looking at Twitter, and my kid is like, Can't you read to me now? And And then I think, like, oh my God, I'm an awful parent. And like, I hope in that moment, I put down my phone. I'm sure I don't always. But so it's not as if I'm just like, you know, kind of like skipping around the backyard with my children like chasing butterflies and like relishing every moment. But, certainly there are just even even in like mundane life like your you know your child can turn to you and ask some very profound question or make some very profound observation that you feel like oh my god like my my entire life was building to this moment
0: you're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Curtis Sittenfeld, author of five novels and a new short story collection called You Think It, I'll Say It. I love that aspect about fiction, I guess, where it's, it's true and not true at the same time, that, that you can't sort of separate your experiences in life with the things you write about, even though it's not your life.
1: I I mean, I I agree completely with that statement that it's like true and not true. Like it's it's also like something can almost be, you know, true but not autobiographical, where I think that a lot of times readers feel a temptation to say, you know, if a story is, quote, true, then it must mean that the main character in the story is a stand in for the writer. And it's, that definitely is not the case. Like, you know, I have not experienced most things in these stories firsthand. Um, But it could be that like, you know, it's almost like like there could be like an old male coworker of, of a, a woman who's like 40 in a story. And like the old male coworker says something that I think, or, you know, like an opinion that I have. But because I'm not I'm not yet that old and I'm not male, like nobody would think that that he was speaking for me or he was reflecting my viewpoint, whereas they would think that like the 40 year old woman is potentially a a stand in for me. But I I mean, again, I think that like um, I think that that's kind of the miracle of fiction is that it can be just so. Nitty gritty and contain this like intimacy and this honesty that's very hard to access in nonfiction. I mean, even though there's astonishingly great nonfiction, but it's like people just there's only you can only be so honest, and then ironically, even <laughs> even or especially on social media. It's almost like it pretends to be honest, and we all know that it's like, you know, whatever, like nonsense or sort of this very, very carefully crafted self-presentations.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: I would love to. So. This is a passage from um, the short story collection, Friend of My Youth, by Alice Munro, which was, I'm looking right now, I think it was originally published in 1990, meaning some of the stories were published like in the New Yorker or the Atlantic in the late 80s. And I first read this, this was the first Alice Munro book, I or maybe was it was the first or second, it was one of the first that I read, and I read it when I was in high school. Um, so I'm going to read... A paragraph from, a long paragraph from the story that's called Hold Me Fast, Don't Let Me Pass. Hazel was a widow. She was in her 50s and she taught biology in the high school in Wally, Ontario. This year she was on a leave of absence. She was a person you would not be surprised to find sitting by herself in a corner of the world where she didn't belong, writing things in a notebook to prevent the rise of panic. She had found that she was usually optimistic in the morning, but that panic was a problem at dusk. This sort of panic had nothing to do with money or tickets or arrangements or whatever dangers she might encounter in a strange place. By the way, sorry, I should have said she's in a hotel in, I don't even, now that I say this, I'm not even sure what hotel, what country, I think she might be in Scotland or Wales. Um, This sort of panic had nothing to do with money or tickets or arrangements or whatever dangers she might encounter in a strange place. It had to do with a falling off of purpose and the question, why am I here? One could as reasonably ask that question at home, and some people do, but generally enough is going on there to block it out.
0: So tell me more about why you chose that.
1: Well, I, I feel like Alice Monroe is definitely my favorite writer. And this, this paragraph just kind of encapsulates. There's so many things that she does that I love and admire. But one of them is that she gives really complex interior lives to characters who in other people's stories might be you know, considered peripheral or mockable. And so it's like a widow in her fifties from, you know, somewhere in Canada that most people haven't heard of, like gets to have all these, and the whole story is about her, gets to have all these like really rich emotions, which of course is true in real life. Like everyone has really rich emotions, but Um, you know, she doesn't have to be like young or I was, I was almost going to say sexy, but maybe she, maybe she is sexy, but she's just not like the 21 year old kind of like pop cultural ideal of sexy. Um, and so it's like people can be rural or people can be any age or people can be not that educated or not glamorous and they still are complex and still, you know, see their own lives in in insightful ways and like have conflicted feelings and are not just reduced to being one dimensional.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Curtis Sittenfeld, author of five novels and a new short story collection called You Think It, I'll Say It. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah. So I thought, I thought that since my story collection is called You Think It, I'll Say It, that I would, I would read, and you and I have obviously talked about the story. I um, would read a passage. The story that that line comes from is called The World Has Many Butterflies, and um yeah, I'll just I'll just start reading this passage. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a few paragraphs and then sort of jump ahead to to something that um like kind of explains it. Um, it was at the Hutchinson's twentieth anniversary party at River Oaks Country Club that Graham appeared beside Julie and said for the first time, "I'll think it, you say it." Julie was standing alone momentarily because the babysitter had texted to ask if her youngest child was allowed to go to sleep with a light on in his room. Graham nodded his head once toward an unofficial receiving line that had formed around the party's hosts. Well, for starters, Julie said, I'm surprised they decided to throw this party because I was always under the impression Brett and Tracy kind of hate each other. She glanced at Graham before adding, I assume they're celebrating what, a total of three happy years together? Graham raised his eyebrows I'd have estimated one but sure let's round up and even though they're both tedious they're tedious in such distinctive ways Julie said with him it's like all roads eventually lead to a disquisition on the pleasures of hunting white-tailed deer but apart from being bloodthirsty he's really gentle and has such good manners whereas with her all roads lead to her gifted children and she's so aggressive and braggy Literally, she's probably told me 12 times that Mr. Vaughn said Fritz is the most talented math student he's ever had. Julie took a sip of her champagne before adding, "'To be fair, Tracy does look great tonight. Her Spanx must be killing her, but she looks great.'" Julie was simultaneously shocked by the conversation, shocked to be having it with a man, shocked by its effortlessness, and not surprised at all. It was as if she'd been waiting to be recognized as if she'd never sung in public. Then someone had handed her a microphone and she'd opened her mouth and released a full throated vibrato, which is actually one of those words that I realize I don't know how to pronounce. (laughs) That's it. The end.
0: (laughs) Do you want to tell me um, why you chose this?
1: Well, I think that, okay, so there's two things. <clears throat> One, I actually, the structure of this story, so the the story, there's a, there's a moment um, in the story or like a sort of scene that occurs on a school field trip where Julie, the main character, is a chaperone. And I felt a fair amount of confusion. Like, I think I originally started the whole story with the field trip. And then I kind of realized, I think I need to get to the game that these two acquaintances play. You know, they play this very confiding, intimate, you know, questionably appropriate game with each other, where they're, where she's kind of making judgmental com- com- um, uh, judgmental observations about other people who, like, you know, for all she knows, he's closer friends with the other people that she's saying mean things about than than he is to Julie herself. Um, and so I think I had this realization, like, Curtis, you have to get to the premise of the story or what makes the story interesting more quickly and not get lost in this field trip that kind of misdirects the reader. And And also, you know, a story... The shortness of a story means you have to be more focused and more careful about pacing than in a novel, although you have to be careful in a novel, too. But you just it's almost like you it has to be like a leaner enterprise when it's a short story. And so I I feel like this short story is written in such a way that if I started reading it, I would think like, oh, my God, I need to know what happens next. And that's that's really a big goal for me as a writer.
0: Where do you write
1: um I write. I have an office in the house where I live in in St. Louis. And so I, you know, I sit down at a desk. It's very like, you know, unexciting, but it's nice. I I'm, I'm lucky that I have a room inside my house that belongs to me. What
0: do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Well, I like to go for walks just, you know, in the suburbs of St. Louis. And it's not, I mean, my, my, because I have kids, I think that my, my writer identity is not, um, I'm trying to think like, it's like, you know, certainly the other, most of the other parents at school know I'm a writer just the way I know that like, you know, that person's mother is like a doctor or a professor or whatever. Um, but it's not, I don't talk about sort of either nitty-gritty aspects of writing or of publishing in a daily way with most almost anyone I know in St. Louis. So it's not I don't feel almost like, "Oh my god, I, my life is all writing all the time and I must escape from it." It's not it doesn't feel that way.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I would say my writer friends. So I have a few friends from grad school which you know I've finished grad school Seventeen years ago, but uh, grad school or like other close writer friends, where I'll say like I've I've finished a story. Do you have Do you have time to take a look at it? And then maybe they'll say I finished a story too. <laughs> and then we'll trade. And then we'll have like a ninety minute conversation. Even though you know, like I have a friend named Emily who lives on Cape Cod. I have a friend named Susanna who lives in Madison, Wisconsin.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? <laughs>
1: Personally or literarily?
0: Mostly in the literary world, but you can go on and share more.
1: (laughs) So interestingly, I, I think that I have always been less phased by professional than personal rejection. And... You know, I think, I feel like I had a few professors in grad school who would say your goal should be like, if you write a, I don't know if it was any one particular story, but almost like your goal should be to get a hundred rejection letters a year from publications, like, you know, places saying, no, I will not publish your story, which is just a really interesting way of reframing it, that it means like you're producing work, you're putting it out there. Um, and I, I mean, it's, I actually have encountered tons of rejection, and I still do, which I think, I think that I, I know people who maybe haven't had their first book published yet, and if they knew this was like my sixth book, and it's totally plausible that you know, I might pitch something to a magazine or I might pitch something to an editor, including an editor who I've worked with in the past – whether it's at the New York times or, you know, like this American life or something. And the person might say, no, thank you. Like, that's just not the right fit. Or like here, they could say no, thank you to the idea. They could say no, thank you to an essay that I've already written. Or, you know, some of these stories have been in the New Yorker and I've submitted, I had another story rejected from the New Yorker like maybe two months ago or something, but it's just, it's all subjective. And, and I, I think that I'm aware of the fact like if, if somebody rejects something and gives specific feedback and it resonates within me where I'm like, yeah, I was kind of worried about that anyway, or I I thought that the story maybe had that weakness, but I was hoping you wouldn't notice, then I I, I try to like apply it and learn from it. But I also think... I don't know you just at some at some point you have to have some belief in yourself and in your work and and there's a lot of areas <laughs> where I don't like there's there's things that I don't think I'm very good at because I'm not you know like cooking or something like I'm not a good cook but I I feel like there's something that I'm trying to do with my writing and I think that I have either achieved it or come very close to achieving it in enough places that I just I feel like I don't have to please everyone to know that, like, my, my work has value or I, that it, it will engross or entertain or be moving to some people, and that's enough.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Well, I have two favorite words, which are actually kind of, um, they kind of echo each other. They kind of have similar meanings, but not identical. I like the word kerfuffle, and I also like the word...
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Curtis Sittenfeld, author of five novels and a new story collection called You Think It, I'll Say It. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.